0: On November 18th, 2007, just last Sunday, the Tennessean displayed a front-page ad with the headline that said something along the lines of Film Questions Biblical Anti-Gay bias." There really wasn't much in the front-page article other than to let us know about a film that was released, I believe, this past Monday. But there was a little sidebar that directed the readers to an article on the issues page. And that article was headlined, Does the Bible Always Tell Us So? And then as the article continued in the inside, it talked about this film, For the Bible Tells Me So. According to the article, this film explores the intersection of biblical teachings and sexual orientation through the experiences of people like U.S. Representative Dick Gephardt, whose daughter Chrissy is a lesbian, and the Reverend Gene Robinson, the nation's first openly gay Episcopal bishop. The article and the film tell us that the common anti-homosexual view among those who are religious is not really coming from what the Bible tells us about homosexuality, but rather from our own prejudices, from proof-texting scriptures, and also from a multi-generational smear campaign against the homosexual behavior. In the trailer of the movie, which you can find at ForTheBibleTellsMeSo.org, there's a particular scene that shows film of evangelists speaking, and then as soon as this is over, it shows George W. Bush making his announcement that marriage cannot be removed from its historical and biblical context, and an unnamed commentator. I don't know who he is. I tried to find out who he was. They didn't have it bylined on the trailer, and I couldn't find any place else. But he makes a comment as all that's going on. He said, like Goebbels said, working for Hitler, you tell a lie enough times, the whole world will believe it. The concept was that we've told the lie enough times that the Bible is opposed to homosexuality, and and now everybody believes it. Later on in the trailer, the same commentator made this comment. For a long time, the Bible has been misused to support prejudice, apartheid, segregation, slavery, the second-class citizenship of women. Now it's being misused to condemn gay people. It's an old trick. Fundamentalist Christians have been using it throughout the ages, and now they're doing it again. Now there's no doubt that the Bible gets misused quite a bit for quite a number of reasons. But this article and this film that has been released, it begs the question, it begs us to ask, what does the Bible really tell us about homosexuality? Does the Bible describe it as a sin? Does it say that there are merely certain forms of homosexuality that are a sin? Does it say that it's an appropriate relationship or appropriate behavior for folks who love each other? What does the Bible really tell us? What I'd like for us to do is just very openly and very honestly take a look at the passages that deal with the sexual relationship as Christians are supposed to have it, as God has described in His Word. And let's just be open and honest. The truth has nothing to fear. If, in fact, we've been misusing the Scripture, we need to teach what the Bible says. If we haven't, we still need to teach what the Bible says. What does the Bible tell us about homosexuality? Before we get into that, would you pray with me, please? Almighty God and Father in Heaven, we love You because You have loved us. You sent Your Son to die for us, to wash away our sins, whatever those sins may be, whether it's sexual immorality or covetousness or or lying or gossip or stealing or even murder. Father, whatever we've done, You sent Your Son to wash our sins away. You sent Your Spirit so that Your Word could be revealed, so we might know how to grow and change and be renewed, that our thoughts could change and our actions could change. And we pray that You would strengthen all of us, whatever our sins may be, that we've struggled with, to overcome those by the power of Your Spirit and by the grace of Your Son and by Your love. Help us to know Your Word and to understand Your Word. Help us to be honest and open with what You have revealed. Father, help us to be understanding and patient with with all as we strive to help each other go to heaven, as we strive to help each other overcome our sins, as we strive to help each other be more like Your Son. Help us to live in an understanding and a loving way that we can strengthen each other so that we might become conformed to the image of Your Son, Jesus. It's through Him that we pray. Amen. So what exactly does the Bible tell us? The very first thing I think we need to recognize is that the Bible tells us that Jews are not allowed to practice homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22. Leviticus chapter 18 And verse 22 says, very plainly, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13, again, very plainly, the Scripture there says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Under the old covenant, God was quite clear Homosexual behavior, having sexual relations with someone of the same gender was an abomination. It was unlawful under the Old Covenant. The penalty was, in fact, death. And the article that we've been taking a look at, these passages are tacitly dealt with as the article begins with this statement. The Bible said that eating shrimp is an abomination and that working on the Sabbath is punishable by death. Not even the most devout Christian, though, thinks twice about ordering the shrimp scampi or checking their office email from home on a Sunday afternoon. Biblical literalists know that the customs and circumstances that gave rise to such injunctions were rooted in historical and cultural contexts very different from our own. So why do so many Christians cling to the handful of scriptures that cast aspersions on sexual relationships between people of the same gender? Yes, it is true that under the Old Covenant, in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 10, shrimp was off-limits for the Jews. And we also know that in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, that under the Old Covenant, the Sabbath must be kept. Now, we're going to ignore the fact that the author of this article doesn't know that the Sabbath is Saturday instead of Sunday. But of course, that might tell us something about everything else he says about the Bible. But the Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. We'll, We'll overlook that but what we need to recognize is that this author makes the same mistake that so many people make today. This statement about eating shrimp and the statement about the Sabbath is not so much about a historical context. It is not so much about a cultural context. It is about a covenant context. As we heard about the Lord's Supper before we participated in it, Brent talked about the fact that we are under a New covenant. We participate in the body and blood of the Lord by partaking of the Lord's Supper to remind us that we are under a new covenant. We have a new high priest and we have a new law. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, the Hebrew writer said, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What the text points out is we are no longer under the old covenant. We are now under a new covenant. And therefore, Christians don't have to think twice about eating shrimp scampi. Christians don't have to think twice about whether or not they're going to answer an email from the office. On the Sabbath, we don't have to worry about those things because we are no longer under that covenant. Here's the key that I think we need to recognize here. The author of this article and others who make this statement are trying to say that we as Christians are inconsistent. The Bible says it's a sin to eat shrimp scanty. No, the Old Testament covenant law said that Jews were not supposed to eat shrimp. It doesn't say that for Christians. It doesn't say that for those who are under the New Covenant. We're not being inconsistent. We're recognizing that we are under a different covenant. However, we do have to be honest about this. This does mean something about these passages in Leviticus. The Christians' view of homosexuality cannot be based solely on these passages in the Old Testament. We need to take a look at what the New Testament says about the homosexual behavior and activities Does the New Testament say the same thing? Or did it change that law? There's something here I do want you to see. I I just picked up this morning as I was going over the lesson again, so this is not in the outline. So you need to remember this one. If you get the outline afterwards, just, just think about this. I want you to notice what he says here. Biblical literalists know that the customs and circumstances that give rise to such injunctions were rooted in historical and cultural context. There's actually a tacit admission in this paragraph. What is he saying? He's saying if you take the Bible literally, you know that Jews aren't allowed to eat shrimp camping. If you take the Bible literally, you know that Jews aren't allowed to answer office emails on the Sabbath. Guess what that admits? If you take the Bible just at what it says in Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, you just take it literally for what it says, we know that Jews are not allowed to participate in homosexuality. Under the Old Covenant, that's what God said. If you want to be a Jew, and I would suggest that you don't try that because salvation is not under the Old Covenant, it's under the New Covenant. But if you're wanting to be a Jew living by the Old Covenant, then you better think twice about eating shrimp, you better think twice about answering that email, and you better definitely think twice about participating in homosexual behavior and activity. Because if you just take it for what it says, even the author of this article admits... God said it was unlawful. But what about the New Covenant? The second thing that we recognize is that the New Testament tells us, the Bible tells us, that marriage and sexuality are to be between one man and one woman for life. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. The Scripture there tells us, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What the Hebrew writer is pointing out is that sexuality and sexual behavior and sexual activity is for marriage and marriage alone. Anything else is sexual immorality. Anything else is adulterous. Anything else is defiling the marriage bed. Sexual activity is for marriage and marriage alone. And the Bible does, in fact, define what marriage is supposed to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, Paul said... This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. "...now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The Scripture is quite plain and quite clear that sexuality is to be in marriage, and marriage is to be between a man and a woman. Very interestingly, the words for wife and husband... Those are the same Greek words for woman and man. Every woman is to have her own man. Every man is to have his own woman. And to do that means we avoid sexual immorality. You see what that says? That says that if I'm going out with multiple women, I'm committing sexual immorality. That also says that if I'm having sexual relations with a man, I'm committing sexual immorality. The Bible says very clearly, one man, one woman for life unless death parts them. Now, our article tells us, the article says in response to this, nowhere, in fact, does the Bible say anything, much less condemn loving and committed partnerships between same-sex adults. Paul never contemplated the monogamous, long-term sexual relationships that take place among people today, explained Jack Rogers, former moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. There's no analogue of our contemporary understanding of the sexual identity in the Bible, neither for heterosexuals nor homosexuals, added Armour. It's simply not there. This, brethren, is simply not true. Look at first Corinthians seven. Is that not talking about a monogamous long term sexual relationship that takes place among people today? It is there. It's just folks today don't like what it says. And it says very clearly, the long-term monogamous sexual relationships are supposed to take place between a married man and woman. Period. That's it. Everything else is unlawful because this is what has been commanded. This is the only authorized sexual relationship found in the Scripture except, of course, abstinence. That's authorized. We can abstain if we're not married. But the Bible does, in fact, teach us about long-term, monogamous sexual relationships between a man, between a woman, and that's it. Nothing else. But there's something here that I think we need to see. And I want us to understand this very, very Clearly. You take a look at what's being said here. Paul never contemplated. There is no analog for our contemporary understanding of this in the Bible. There's something very subtle that is being made in this statement and others like it that we need to recognize. This article, the movie that's coming out, I'm sure will follow the same path. And and so many that I've talked to about this issue essentially make the same point. You see, what they believe is that Paul wrote the Bible that Mark and Matthew wrote the Bible. These statements actually argue against the divine inspiration because the reasoning is that Paul, a finite man, wrote letters. Matthew wrote the gospel. Peter wrote letters. These men didn't know what we now know about homosexuality. The argument, of course, is is that through science we've learned that people are born homosexual and there's nothing they can do about it. And now we know this, supposedly, and this was something that Paul didn't know. And so Paul didn't write about this. He wrote about something else. But what if you believe in the divine inspiration of the Scripture? What if you believe 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all Scripture is God-breathed? If you believe that, you can't make these statements. Because God, who created man and woman, knows everything about our sexual identity, doesn't he? God was not limited by what science knew in the first century. God knows everything our science is ever going to discover. It knows He knows every mistake it's ever going to make. He knows everything science is ever going to get right. God did not misunderstand sexual identity. God, God did not overlook what we were going to learn 2,000 years later. God knew exactly what our sexual identity was and everything about it when He, through Paul, wrote some of these passages. This only works if you deny that the Bible is really from God. Because once you accept it's from God, you can't say this. And so we need to understand this. Ultimately, those who are going to argue that the Bible teaches homosexuality is okay have to say it's not really from God. It was Paul. It was somebody in the first century writing it who didn't understand the truth. So those who make this argument aren't really telling us what the Bible supports. I hope you can see that very clearly. None of this argument says the Bible supports anything. It says the writers of the Bible were ignorant and therefore didn't condemn what we thought they condemned. That's what it says. But the Scripture very plainly says marriage and sexuality are to be between a man and a woman. It's supposed to be for life until death parts them. The third thing that Scripture tells us, the New Testament tells us that homosexual behavior is contrary to nature. In Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And verse 26. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26, "...for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature." And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. First thing you need to notice here, because this is, in the modern debate, a very important point. This passage mentions not only homosexual men, but homosexual women. That's important because a lot of the passages only mention men and that's a big deal is made about. But this passage says that women gave up the natural function of men for that which was unnatural. Men gave up the natural function of women for that which was unnatural. It says that homosexual activity is contrary to nature. Now, regrettably, the article that we had in question this week didn't comment on this passage. However, I've talked with some and, and I know some of the arguments that are made and so I just want to share with you. What is commonly said about Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, among those who claim that the Bible teaches it's okay to participate in homosexual behavior, as we know it today, is that it talks about nature. And so what Paul was really talking about is people who were born with a heterosexual nature participating in homosexuality. Paul wasn't talking about folks born with a homosexual nature. If they were born with a homosexual nature, then it would be okay. And of course, they remind us, Paul didn't know anything about that. See, once again, Paul is the ignorant writer who doesn't know everything about sexuality and therefore he's not talking about this. Once again, God, the ultimate author of Scripture, was not the ignorant author. He's not ignorant of the truth. He knows the answer to all the questions about how each of us are born and what he said which homosexual behavior is contrary to nature. Now, I want you to think this through, because I think Romans 1, 26 27 is a very important passage. In our debate today, we are told by so many, not all, by the way, because some folks in the homosexual community, it's an anathema to them to talk about it being born that way. Some folks want to say, look, I get to make my choice, and it doesn't matter how I was born. You have no right to tell me how to behave. But some folks are standing on this argument that I'm born that way. I can't help it because I'm born that way. Here's my question. How is it that anyone in our society today knows or believes that they were born to practice homosexuality? How is it that anyone bases their argument that I was born to practice homosexuality? Is it not because of how strongly they desire it? Is it not because they'll say, I just can't get these desires out? I've had these strong desires. I've had them for as long as I can remember. I want you to look at Romans 1, verse 26 again. Excuse me, verse 27. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion. Your translation may say desire for one another. We go back to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions or desires. The very key upon which we're supposed to base our determination that somebody is born to be to practice homosexuality is the thing that God said is dishonorable. Folks don't say, I'm born that way because I have this great desire and God said, that's wrong. Being consumed with that passion for one another. That, that key to knowing we're born that way is the thing God says, no, no, no when you consume a passion for one another, that's wrong. You see the point? Romans 1, 26 through 27. Whatever we might say about being born a certain way, whatever we might say about genetics, what that passage points out is the key upon which we want to base the supposed decision that somebody's born that way. God said you're not supposed to have that desire. You're supposed to control and overcome. The Bible also tells us that homosexuality is unlawful. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 8 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now God, through Paul, wrote to Timothy and said that homosexuality, practicing homosexuality, is in line not with loving, committed relationships, but with lawless disobedience, with ungodly sin, with unholiness and profanity. It says that it is not in accord with sound doctrine. It's contrary to sound doctrine. It's not in accordance with the gospel of glory. Now, please understand, this is not Christians being judgmental. This is people just saying what the judge has said. And here's something that we need to recognize here. I don't know how this has happened in our modern society, but somehow, when folks say that homosexuality is a sin, that that behavior and that activity is sinful... Folks, act as though we've taken this one sin and set it above everything else and caused us to be judges of people. But I want you to notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, "...you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Do you notice what this passage says? This passage says that we were all dead in trespasses and sins. My friend, if you are here today struggling with the sin of homosexuality, I am not saying anything to you that I haven't said to every person in this room. You look around you and every person you see has been a sinner. And every one of them have heard the message, you've got to quit your sins if you want to be righteous. If you want to be saved by the blood of Jesus, you've got to repent and turn away from those things. We are all dead in trespasses and sin. We all need our Savior Jesus Christ. And we have not set up homosexuality as something special, as though we're judging those who are dealing with that sin. We're getting the same message to every person. Stop sinning and be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's a message we have to give everybody. Nobody gets upset when I tell people you need to quit your drunkenness or you're going to go to hell. Nobody gets upset. I say you've got to quit your philandering or you're not going to be saved. Nobody gets upset when I say you can't be a coveter or an idolater or, and you're, or you're going to be lost. I have to say all those things. And the Bible says that homosexuality is unlawful. And it continues to say that those who practice homosexuality will not enter the kingdom of God, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And interestingly, the English Standard Version has taken two statements and brought it into one. The English Standard says men who practice homosexuality. Your translation may say uh, sodomites and homosexuals or effeminate and homosexuals. Uh, The idea there is, in fact, according to the footnote, the English Standard says two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. When you see those two terms, you're talking about both sides of a homosexual relationship, the passive and the active. But it says that those who practice homosexuality, that it's unrighteousness, and that those who practice impenitently will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you can say all kinds of things about me. You get mad at me. You can say I am judgmental. You can call me names. But the fact is, we're all going to stand before God in judgment one day, and and if we've thrown out the Bible, or we've twisted the Bible to say something it doesn't say, we're going to stand in judgment before that. We can convince all the churches in the nation to allow folks who participate in homosexuality to be members and say that they're going to heaven. That's not going to change anything on the day of judgment. God doesn't take a poll from us. God's not going to ask, well, what did all y'all think about this sin? He's going to say, I said, if you do this, you're not going to inherit my kingdom. And there's nothing we can say about it that's going to make it any different from what God said. Now in the article, I'd like for you to hear what is said about this passage and the one in 1 Timothy. Pronouncements decrying prostitution, which by the way, did either one of these passages when it talks about homosexuality say anything about prostitution? No, it talked about homosexuality. Pronouncements to find prostitution in the first books of Corinthians and Timothy likewise are not about sexual orientation but about the exploitation of underage males, a practice tantamount to what we now call human trafficking. These scriptures address ritual wrong as opposed to something innately immoral. Later in the article, the person who wrote it made the comment about proof texting. Very upset about people as they pulled the biblical text, ripped them from their biblical context and their historical context. But I would like to suggest, and that's wrong, If we've done that, that's wrong. But I would like to suggest it is equally wrong to add context to the passage. You see, what is being said here is, oh, back in the first century, the most common forms of homosexuality was essentially in the slave trade. Men would get with their young boy slaves. And one of the other common forms of homosexuality was in idolatrous temple worship ritual homosexuality. Both of those things would be wrong. But you tell me one thing stated in either in 1 Timothy or 1 Corinthians that says that's the only forms of homosexuality being talked about. Very interestingly, God, knowing everything about our sexuality, could have very specifically, through Paul, demonstrated the specific kinds of homosexuality that were wrong, but all he said was homosexuality is wrong. And it is naive and dishonest to claim that somehow we know 2,000 years later that the only kind of homosexuality in the first century was human trafficking and idolatrous temple worship. You don't think there were people in the first century who said, I can't get past my desires, I was born this way, I have to do this? You don't think there were people back then that said, I love my partner? I mean, listen, we can't have it both ways. Some of these same folks want to tell us that David and Jonathan were homosexual partners. And we can't say that David and Jonathan had a long-term monogamous sexual relationship and then turn around and say it never happened back then, so Paul wasn't talking about that. You can't say both things. There's nothing in these contexts that limits the form of homosexuality. It just says homosexuality blanket is unlawful. And that those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. And our first century counterparts, when they read it, would not have said, well, now Paul only meant two kinds of homosexuality. They would have read just what we read. Finally, the Scripture does teach. The Bible tells us that those who practice homosexuality can repent and they can change and turn away from their practices. First Corinthians chapter 6. We've read verses 9 and 10. It points out that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of the Corinthians have been practicers of homosexuality. But Paul said they were changed. They were cleansed. They overcame their sins. I'll tell you what. No matter what you say about the genetics, no matter what you say about being born that way, even if we'll say, and I'm not sure that's true, but even if it is, even if we'll say that, that some are born with a propensity to that desire... I'll tell you what, it's not the same as being born white or being born black. That's what's being said today. The fact is, being a black man is not a behavior. Being a white woman is not a behavior. Homosexuality is a behavior. And no matter what desires we have within us, it's behavior over which we have control and which we can change, just as the Corinthians did. But you see, there's something very interesting being done today. Christians have not set up homosexuality as some greater sin and separating it from all the others. But folks in the world have set apart homosexuality as though those who deal with that sin are just different from everybody else. I want you to listen to Romans 7, and verse, beginning at verse 7. Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. Paul said, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means... So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know, in verse 14, that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. This this is really where it gets started, good. I do not understand my own actions. I do not want to. That sounded like a person who said, I, I want to do what's right, but, but I keep sinning. I'm struggling with that. It's hard for me to overcome my sins. And those who participate in homosexual activity act as though because it's hard to stop, it must be alright. Welcome to sin. Sin's hard to stop. There are folks who are liars that have a hard time stopping their lives. Does that mean they were born that way and God's alright with it? Does that mean that Paul didn't understand the genetics of lying and he wasn't speaking about people that were born liars? Folks, you know, I have a problem with lust. It's hard to stop. Does that mean that they were born genetically with the propensity to lust and therefore it's alright for them because Paul didn't understand the genetics of lust? And it's alright because of that? No. Folks, Sin takes over our lives. We feel like we can't stop. We feel like it's inbred. We feel like there's nothing we can do about it, but there's one answer, and the answer is not, well, okay, I'll throw up my hands, it's all right. The answer is, Jesus Christ can deliver me. No matter what my sin is. Not everybody here has the same sin. Some folks struggle with sexual immorality. Some folks struggle with lying. Some folks struggle with gossip. Some folks struggle with drinking. Some folks, I imagine, struggle with homosexuality. But the answer is not because it's hard, it must be alright. The answer is because I can't do it on my own, I better turn to Jesus. So that I can be washed. Justify. Sanctify. You know, there's another side of this. For those of us who don't struggle with homosexual temptation, if those who struggle with that can change and can repent just like we can with our sins, how are we supposed to act towards those who have committed this sin? What if somebody came in? and said, this is my sin that I want to be saved from. I've committed homosexuality. How would we act? Would we welcome them in with open arms and let them know that we're here to help them overcome? Or would we kind of keep them at arm's length because we think their sin is somehow worse than ours? And what if we welcomed them in and they were baptized into Christ and they plugged along pretty well, but then one day they came forward and said, I did it again last night. What would we do? How do we want people to treat us when we say to them, you know what, I lied again this week. I had my outburst of wrath again this week. I coveted again this week. I lusted again this week. I looked at pornography again this week. I stole again this week. I gossiped again this week. I want people to treat us. Can we have the patience to do way more than just try to vote on some legislation? But to actually try to help folks overcome sin as we want folks to help us overcome our sins. This is what the Bible tells us about homosexuality. Nothing has been taken out of context. You can be mad at me. I'm not trying to judge anyone. I'm just trying to share with you what the judge has said. We can twist it and make it say something else, but it won't change what God says about it on the day of judgment. We can propagandize our way through to every church in the nation and cause every church to change their message. But it won't change what God has said about it. And I can tell you today, there's only one reason that this message has been preached. And it's not because we're trying to tell all those who struggle with the sin of homosexuality that they're wrong and to get out. It's because we want to help everybody no matter what sin they're dealing with. Overcome the devil. Not be deceived by all the modern propaganda, but simply turn to Jesus and allow Him to free you from your sin. I'll be honest with you. It's a hot-button issue in our society. And I can't promise anybody about any sin how everybody in any congregation, even this one, is going to treat them. But I can tell you what we're going to strive for. And that's to welcome anybody, no matter what sin they've dealt with, who wants to submit to Jesus and strive to overcome. It's going to be a rocky road. But that's what Christ Church is about to help us overcome our sin.